and welcome to this week's episode of the Football and More podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman, talking about football and more each and every single week. Um, this week, we actually have a guest. Last week, I just talked for 15 minutes because I did not have a guest. But this week, we are joined by someone really great. Before I get to him, I know last week I mentioned that I'm working on a project where I'm going to be potentially doing some draft analysis on Twitch. I'm still working on getting that together. I hopefully have some more updates about that this week. If you follow me at Ethan Ham, you will see more. But yeah, group film study might be coming back, which would be really cool. If you did that in the past, that's great. If not, uh, first time for everything. You'll, I think you'll really enjoy it. But yeah, this week's guest is someone really great, someone who I want to have on for a while. Uh, he's definitely one of the friendlier people I think I know on Twitter. Uh, he's the managing editor of BigCatCountry.com. He's Ryan Day. Ryan, how are you? Hi, I'm doing good. Um, yeah, I, I always, I always feel very honored and uh, far, far sad. Like far, uh, I always feel very honored and just very sad. Um, I feel like because I'm not a very good host or a guest on like football podcasts. I don't know a lot about football. Uh, I feel as though I'm just sort of an, an underwhelming uh, guest, but I'm glad that you asked me. You're selling yourself way too short. You really are. And you host your own podcast, too. I forgot. I keep chopping wood with <laughs> Hank Jones and Eric Stoner, who both have also been on my podcast. You're the third member of that podcast to now make the podcast crossover to my podcast. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, we uh, we just wrapped up our season uh, recap, talking about the Tom Coughlin um, press conference today and the Doug Marone introduction and just talking about the Jaguar season as a whole, which was, which was pathetic, but just talking about how Coughlin coming into this culture is just going to be a shock, I think for a lot of players and for some of us, some of them, it's not going to be very good, but I think most of them it's going to be, it's going to be really, really positive. So we could actually start with that because you are a Jaguars guy. Um, what do you think about Coughlin and Marone? It seemed like, you know, people weren't very excited about the Marone hire. I personally thought, that you guys should have hired Mike Smith from Tampa, who actually just got extended in Tampa, did a really good job with that defense. But you guys hired Marone. It sounded like his first press conference went pretty well, and I think there's some excitement about Coughlin too. So what do you guys think right now? I think I think I was in, in your boat. I'd rather have had us get someone like a Shanahan or a Mike Smith, someone with a little bit more head coaching experience, um, someone with a little bit more success. I mean, Shanahan didn't have head coaching experience, but um, Smith certainly did. Um, Shanahan, you know, knows how to run an offense. Um, but I, I think bringing Tom Coughlin on board really brings an, you know, a, a wild card to this whole thing. I think Tom Coughlin handpicked Marone, which to me says a lot about Marone and, you know, maybe proves us all wrong because to me, Tom Coughlin's kind of infallible when it comes to football opinion. If he says that a coach is worthy to be hired, then, well, my opinion must be wrong because Tom Coughlin said otherwise. Um, but the, the, the optics, as, as Eric Stoner says, the optics of the whole thing just looked really weird because the Jaguars' main account and their website went dark the entire process. We didn't hear anything. And then we hear leaks of Marone is going to be hired, and five minutes later, boom, he's hired. And then ten minutes later, we hear Coughlin's hired. And it's like – what just happened? Like, did we, you know, did we miss out on the people that we wanted to hire and we just settled on Marone? Oh my God, now we have Coughlin. Like it was like the seven stages um, of grief 
that that we did twice in a 20 minute period. And it seems like the coaching hires are going really quickly this offseason. I mean, I don't think there are that many open jobs left. Pretty much it's just the Niners at this point because Sean McVay, at 30 years old, which is crazy, just got hired by the Rams. Can you imagine being the head coach of NFL team at 30? That must be crazy. No, no, I can't. I can't even remember to feed my child three times a day. I can't. And I'm, and I'm 31, like, and which, which is crazy. Like I, I read that today, Sean McVay, he's 30 years old. He turns 31 in January or something like that. And I was like, Oh my God, like I am in like my mindset as a 31 year old is almost identical to this guy. And this guy is in charge of not only a football team, but a football team in Los Angeles. Like that, that just, that, that to me screams, overwhelmed but who knows and if you want to feel old this is the most amazing thing sean McVay went to miami of ohio and his first year was the year after ben roethlisberger was drafted uh well thanks uh <laughs> you know i didn't feel old enough already uh spraining my foot after just running a few miles but thank you for reminding me of that yeah i mean it's it's pretty crazy um, we'll see what happens with him, but yeah, I mean, he just got hired Anthony Lynn on the new Los Angeles chargers. Um, my hot take is that there should not be, I mean, I don't think it's a hot take, but there shouldn't be another team in LA. I think the chargers should move to London. Just, we know you want to do it. You know, people keep teasing the Jaguars to London. We know that's not going to happen. Just why did no one ever tease the chargers to London? It doesn't make any sense to me, you know? Well, I, Actually, I seem to – I mean it was years ago when the the whole London Jaguars and Los Angeles Jaguars was really picking up steam. And for some reason, I seem to remember the Chargers slightly being in that conversation. Maybe it was just them going to L.A., but I seem to – I don't know. I'll Google it after this. But I seem to remember the Chargers also being in that whole relocation conversation. Probably because their owner's cheap. (laughs) Yeah, probably because their owner sucks at life. Um, so yeah, and now and now Philip Rivers is going to have to move his uh his eight kids up the road. That should be fun. Although I guess they commute to games. Two hours actually isn't that bad. But I still feel bad for San Diego. I, I actually the one thing I loved about Qualcomm Stadium, and I like this about Philly too. When I was there, it was on the train, so you could just take the train to the game and not even have to use your car, and it was so convenient. And more stadiums yeah. should be like that. I, the only time I've had that sort of experience, I was up in Chicago for work and I went to a Cubs game like randomly and, um, and it was, yeah, you took the train, you literally got out of the station and boom, you're right there, um, at Wrigley. It was, it was insane. And I was like, man, I, I wish every single sports venue could be like this. Yeah. If only, I mean, a lot are, but that was still nice. Now you're going to this 30,000 seat stadium for two years. It makes no sense at all. You're basically killing the team. Well, yeah. And I was, how is that going to work? Like literally their stadium is smaller than most, you know, college stadiums. It's like what you said, 30,000, 25,000. Like, I just, I can't wrap my head around a football game being played, you know, in something smaller than a 60,000, you know, uh, person stadium. I mean, you're betting, I guess, that the fans aren't going to travel or that they don't have any fans. I guess we'll see. I mean, that, that division, though, is has changed 
in terms of its complexion a bit, because now in that division, you have Los Angeles, you have Las Vegas, you have Denver and Kansas City. And I mean, I'm all about the Las Vegas Raiders. I think that that's going to be really fun when that happens. I just wish that there wasn't a, another team in LA. It just, it doesn't seem very expedient to me, but I guess we'll see what happens. But I, when San Diego just immediately moved to LA, I, I did think of the Jaguars because I remembered how angry everyone got when Jason Lachon Forrest said that the Jaguars are going to London. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, hit me back in 2021. So we're, we're four years out of that and uh, we'll see. We'll see how close the Jaguars are to London in four years. And actually, just down uh, breaking news on my timeline, Wade Phillips is going to become the DC of the Rams. So a nice addition for McVay. That's a really good addition for them. I like that yeah, a lot. We had like a 10-minute segment on Wade Phillips as like, man, he'd be the wishless guy in Jacksonville. <laughs> well, he's gone now. Great. <laughs> he's no longer in the mix. But speaking of Jacksonville and speaking of coordinators – um, you guys are going to be making some changes, of course. So what do you think that team needs to jump back up in the AFC South? Um, a quarterback, uh, someone like, a, they need Blake Bortles to not play like the worst starting quarterback in the NFL. Um, they need, they need to finally figure out what they're going to do in terms of defense, because there were just too many. Um, playmakers and and whether they're underwhelming or or not, like a Dante Fowler or, or or something like that. Like Miles Jack was even underwhelming at times, but they never really settled on what are we going to do with these guys who we spent some good draft capital on and who have freakish athletic traits and are good at football. What are we going to do? Um, how are we going to build a defense around our playmakers? Like really, the Jaguars defense has Jalen Ramsey. Um, you know, Yannick Ngakwe, Malik Jackson, um, and, and Telvin Smith to, to a degree, but that's pretty much it. Like that's really who's settled in the defense that leaves a lot of open spaces. So really they just need Blake Bortles to not, um, play awful and they need, um, Allen Robinson to not drop passes and they need TJ Yeldon to stop kicking the ball to the other team and, um, we'll be good. It's weird though, because, I mean, the Jaguars signed so many free agents, and you mentioned Malik Jackson, but there's also like um, Tashawn Gibson, Prince Amakamara, um, Devon House. There were all of these players that you guys brought in, and I, I think that it's fair when you spend all this money, and these players were good on other teams. Like Prince Amakamara was a starting quarterback in New York. Tashawn Gibson was a pretty good safety in Cleveland. Why did they regress so much? Was it more that they were overvalued by the GM and the scouting department, or were they just misused by the coaching staff? Um, I mean, it's it's always both, but with this one, I'd say it was more of column B than column A. Like you had you had Gibson after the season um, criticizing the defensive coaching staff for making him quote a babysitter all season, which meant which meant like so they brought Gibson in to be a free safety. They brought him in to be sort of that, that guy who's, who's helping to cover the deep pass. You know, he's lining up 15, 20 yards off the ball, but what Gibson didn't know was that that's all he'd be doing. Um, and you know, to, to the point of Prince of Mukamara, like I didn't think he really played that awful. 
Like I thought he was a decent outside corner. I thought that he had some some places where he just he slipped up in the coverage. Um, some of them due to his own inadequacies, and some of them due to the fact that like we have the pass rush of a potato um, in Jacksonville. So like Amu Kamara, like I hope we resign him. Uh, especially with Coughlin coming in. I think Coughlin likes Amukamara. Um, he played with him up in New York. Um, so, and, and Gibson, I, I think he regressed because I think he's just not as good as we thought he was going to be. Like uh, on the Keep Chopping Wood that we just recorded, we talked about how, you know, he was sold as like an Earl Thomas. Like we're going to sign him to be our Earl Thomas. And, you know, there's only one Earl Thomas. And so, I, I just don't think Gibson has it in him to be that much of a playmaker. Can he be like a guy who contributes with like a cover two um, where he's got, you know, someone else helping him maybe where he's like shifted around a little bit and not just playing babysitter the whole time. He could probably succeed in that a little bit more than he did last year, but I just don't see him really being in the upper echelon of free safeties. Yeah, I guess we'll see what happens there. Uh, I, I like Gibson last year. I know he had some tackling issues um, this year. But hopefully he can figure it out because he's a nice story and he's someone who really worked his way up and made himself some money. So I hope he can actually earn that money. Yeah, you're a pass rusher. Yannick is good and Malik is good. Fowler had a really bad year. And I was thinking about this. I think I mentioned this to Hank when Hank was on the show. Um, All of his sacks at Florida were from the defensive tackle position. He ran in a straight line, didn't have to bend. And here he has to bend. And even this year, I think most of his pressures and sacks were on stunts. So... Maybe you just move him as a pass rushing defensive tackle now. Maybe you figure out a way to have him on a straight line to the quarterback or line him up so that way he has a slant to the cornerback. Like, you can't – I don't think you trust him to bend at this point. I mean, that that's all well and good, but you. I think you're greatly overestimating how – or, yeah, I don't know. I think you're greatly undervaluing how – hard it is to have a straight line to the quarterback like Dante Fowler wants when he just shoots up the A-gap. And I think he had like, what, three sacks this year, three and a half sacks, something like that. And I think all but one half sack was him stunting to the A-gap and boom, he just hits the quarterback. And if, if we have to manufacture sacks and he's like a five or six sack guy and, you know, all but two of them are, are through that A-gap, fine. Like that's what he is. He'll play out his first contract and then he'll leave and not resign. Um, but he just does not have the skill set to, to bend around the edge. He doesn't. I, I don't think he's that guy. I think you just play with what you have until his contract runs out, and then you let him go. So all that being said, when you look at the draft this year, who do you want your team to draft? Um, I mean, probably Jonathan Williams. I, I like – like Coughlin won – I mean – I, I hate to say this to you. I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure you're a big Pats fan. You write for you wrote for Pats Pulpit, or you currently do. But I mean, Coughlin won two Super Bowls against the Pats, largely in part because his his defensive line was like three or four deep at some positions, and he had like he had a stacked defensive line. Now he has Eli Manning. He knows how to coach up receivers. He's got a great offensive line. But that defensive line, like, was was the factor. I think. Um, that limited Tom Brady's effectiveness in in oh four and oh seven. So I think I, I think you meant Jonathan Allen. You said Jonathan Williams. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I was yeah. thinking Tim. I was thinking Tim Williams and Jonathan Allen. Hey, at the same why time. not both? both of them. Combine them into one person, please. They could be one player. Yeah. But because yeah, that I think, I think yeah, is get, part. Yeah. That's part of the problem, I think, because 
in your defense, where would Jonathan Allen play? Would you have him as a defensive end? Would you have him next to Malik? Because him and Malik play pretty similar roles. Yeah, I mean, all of the above. I, I think I think Allen can be, and that's the thing is like, Coughlin is going to be helping Marone, who's going to be helping the defensive coordinator come up with a scheme, and it's likely going to be Todd Wash, who was there last year. They're going to be coming up with a scheme together, and all of them are very good at thinking up defense and defensive philosophy. So for me, you bring in someone like an Allen who can play several positions along the defensive line and he can do them well. And you just say, all right, this is our guy. And if Senderic Marks has to go, then he has to go. I mean, he's like 30 years old. Like I don't want my, you know, three, five gap, whatever. Like I don't want my defensive tackle to be on the other end of 30 um, going into this season. So you have Malik Jackson, you've got a nose tackle in, in Avery Jones, who's very, very good. Um, and then you've got some, you know, depth guys like a Sheldon day playing defensive tackle, but you bring in an Allen who can just go up and down that line and just fill in whatever gaps, you know, uh, whatever miss, I guess like mismatches that present themselves week to week. I guess we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how the draft boards shake out uh, as we get through the senior bowl as more players declare and the combine happens. I haven't done any mock drafts yet. I don't plan on doing many mock drafts this year, but I guess we'll see what happens with the Jaguars. And once I have a better idea of who I think they should take, I'll let you know. Um, Last question, then I will move on to the more general NFL. Do you think you take a quarterback this year? Yeah. I mean, would you take one round one though? You would not take one round one. No, 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 no. No, I wouldn't take one number one because this is the year you have to figure out if, if Bortles is worth, um, uh, that that second contract and if you take one this year and you invest that much firstly you invest a top five pick like that right there I don't think is a very good idea because there are so many holes on this roster um, but no you know, I, I think I think honestly Coughlin Coughlin's really good at finding depth guys like I'm gonna get really old man Twitter um, for a second, like Coughlin back in 95 got Mark Burnell off, you know, behind Brett Favre for a third and fifth rounder. He got Rob Johnson in, in the, the mid rounds. I think like he, I think Rob Johnson was a fourth round pick and turned him into a first round trade just a season or two later that resulted into Fred Taylor. Like he got Jay Fiedler. Um, he got David Garrard in the fifth round. Like Tom Coughlin knows, I, I don't think Tom Coughlin ever had a quarterback that was like, you know, he, he, he used, um, a larger, uh, pick on until Eli Manning, um, until he was like, okay, I need, I, you know, I need this. And even with Eli Manning, he's still trying to get in those guys to, to provide that depth. And so I think, I think with Bortles, he's going to say, all right, I need a year with a coach who knows what he's doing. And, you know, let's, let's coach up Bortles and see what we have. But while we do that, we're going to bring in a free agent. We're going to bring in a mid round guy and we're going to, you know, figure out what we have with Brandon Allen and, and we're going to have four or five quarterbacks in OTAs. That makes sense to me. I mean, for some reason, when you were talking about old school Jaguars, and this is a total aside, I thought of Tony Brackens. I think of a way to work Tony Brackens into Twitter at some point this week. I'm going to figure it out. Because he was very good, and I think he's forgotten in the annals of history. So he's, I mean, he he until he blew his knee out after you know what was it four years or something like that. But he was he was a freak. He was an absolute freak athletically. Like he he was who everyone wanted Clowney to be. Like he he was that twenty years ago. 
I'm going to work him into a Twitter mention at some point this week. That's my promise. Dude, Stoner, Stoner, loves, Stoner loves Brackens. Like, just DM him and be like, hey, let's let's talk about Brackens. All right. Well, we might do that. I want to quickly transition over to this week's playoff games um, and last week's playoff games as well because we're in the NFL playoffs right now, and we owe it to these people to give them a little bit of analysis. It doesn't have to be too intense um, because I feel like a lot of these games were, A, really boring, or B, pretty much have been analyzed to death at this point. Uh, but what games did you watch this weekend, and what did you think of them? Um, well, of course I watched uh, uh, Houston-Oakland. I, I really wanted Oakland to just pull out a miracle and to, to send Bill O'Brien packing, but that was not going to happen. Uh, you could tell that from, like, the first drive. Um, Detroit-Seattle, I mean, that, that just – it got out of hand quickly and you know i was watching i was watching the daughter by myself this weekend so i was like i'm not going to pay any attention to to seattle detroit and then pittsburgh miami i watched the first little bit of it and got to see um got to see uh matt moore like die and then come back one play later i thought that was pretty fun and then green bay new york you just sort of like Green Bay, New York. I was busy. I just couldn't do it. And um, but I did see, I did see, you know, Aaron Rodgers complete his like sixth straight hail mary um, in a high, highlight recap afterwards, which was, which was disappointing, but you know, couldn't be unexpected. Yeah, three of the games were absolutely awful. I think mm-hmm. that there was one good half of football in all of the games this week, and that was the first half of the Green Bay game which was actually yeah. competitive. Uh, and then it ended on a great note with that Hail Mary. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I have my super quick takes in each game. I don't think anything really surprised me other than I thought Miami would be slightly more competitive with Pittsburgh. And I thought that the Giants were going to beat the Packers. Um, but when Dominique got injured in that Giants game, it just really hurt them. And they weren't able to get enough pressure on Rodgers. So I can see why the Packers won that game. Yeah, in I terms mean, of, in terms of Lions uh, Seahawks, I mean, did you see that being like a twenty point difference? I know Seattle kind of ran away with it in the fourth quarter, like, but I, I didn't, I did not see that even running away in the fourth quarter. I didn't see that happening. I didn't necessarily see them running away with it, but I thought Seattle was a better team and pretty demonstrably yeah. better. And I, I just thought that they were going to end up winning that game. And Paul Richardson made some amazing catches. Uh, they didn't have C.J. Process in that game. They get him back this week against Atlanta, I think. Oh, we'll see what happens there. But he, Thomas Rawls did a really good job. And the defense played pretty well. So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't that surprised. Uh, I, I mean, th- these were three of the four teams I expected to make it. And honestly, that Giants-Packers game is a bit of a toss-up. So, I really don't have too many qualms about how I called the first week. But now we're moving on to the second week, and we have some really, really good matchups coming up. We have Seattle-Atlanta. We have New England-Houston. We have um, Kansas City-Pittsburgh. And we have the Packers against the Cowboys. So from your perspective, you look at these games, what do you think? I mean, I think, I think sadly we get – you know, Saturday night with the two worst games. Um, and then we get Sunday afternoon with the two better games. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't think Seattle's going into, um, uh, Atlanta and, and going to do anything competitive. And I mean, 
what is New England like? They're I, last I saw sixteen point favorites. Over Are you the taking Texans. the over? Say what? what? Are you going to take the over? The over uh, for the uh, what's the? It's like a forty. It's forty-four and a half. No, I don't take the over because the Texans are or the Texans will score six points. Yeah, it'll be like thirty-one to six. That's probably true. I, I'm actually I saw a lower over than that. I'm pretty surprised that that's the over. Um, yeah, uh, I think Seattle Land is a good game, but Atlanta should win. They're at home. Seattle doesn't have Earl Thomas this time. I'm not sure they can stop Atlanta's offense. Um, I think that that's going to be a really big game for Atlanta. I mean, they could choke. They could pull in Atlanta, but they should win that game. That Patriots game, I mean, they beat them 27 nothing with Jacoby Brissett. If they lost that game, that would be absolutely stunning. Well, and, and just for some comparison, um, just because I'm in old man Jaguars mode from talking keep chopping wood and Tom Coughlin, when the Jaguars went to go play the Broncos in 96, like that game where they – they went into mile high and they actually beat them. Uh, the, the Jaguars were only, I believe, 10 or 11 point underdogs. So for the, the Texans to be 16 point underdogs to the Patriots, even with Tom Brady, is like somehow worse than a near inaugural team going in and playing John Elway at mile high during John Elway and Shannon Sharp's like peak. How did they win that game? I don't know. God's real. Like, I, I honestly don't know. Like, Mark Brunell worked some sort of magic. Uh, Tom Coughlin somehow called a hell of a game. Jimmy Smith – I mean, Jimmy Smith had, like, what arguably one of the better playoff games. Like, he had an incredible touchdown catch in the second half. Um, I mean, also the Broncos were – not to get too deep into it. The Broncos were, were pretty rusty because they – Shanahan – Mike Shanahan had been resting – uh, the Broncos for several weeks because he had the number one seed locked up by like week 15 or 16 and they had a buy for the wild card. So he rested his starters for three weeks, I think. So they came into the divisional game and they were just super rusty. And then I believe that was the year when the Patriots played you in the championship and the Patriots won yep. and they got destroyed by the Packers. So it all comes full yep. circle. Yeah. Yeah. It all comes full circle. Go. Yeah. Go Parcells. The Patriots should win this game. I think that they will. I'm. It does sound like Legarrette Blunt might not play though. We'll see if he ends up playing, but he sound sounds like he's sick, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. But even then, I think that they should be able to manage something. Pittsburgh, yeah, Kansas I mean, just, City, yeah, they, they could they could put you they could put you at tailback. Like they're still winning this game by eight. Right? Yeah, I probably I probably go for sixty, but I get two touchdowns: one on a one yard plunge, one on a two yard pass at the goal line when I league out of the backfield. But yep. that's how it would work. Um, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, that could be a pretty good game. I think Pittsburgh wins, though. Really? And I, I know they're going to Kansas to City. Kansas City's a really tough place to play. But Pittsburgh's defense has been playing better the past couple of weeks. Now, granted, last week it was against Matt Moore. But Bud Dupree's really come alive on the edge. And... The secondary in general is playing a little bit better than I expected. The linebackers are doing a really good job. On offense, I mean, when you have Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, and Ben Roethlisberger, you're going to be in pretty much every single game. So I really think that Pittsburgh is going to do a little bit too much for Kansas City. Now, Kansas City, they're going to keep it close. Kansas City's a really good team. Alex Smith is a pretty good quarterback. Travis Kelsey is a top three tight end in football, and he can make plays. you got... Uh, Tyree Kill as well, who can begrudgingly make plays. 
But I think that the Steelers pull off an upset here. I think the Steelers win, and I think the Packers win in Dallas. So I think that we see two road teams and two home teams win this week. Wow. No, I mean, I I don't think the Packers stand a chance in Dallas. Wow. Um, and I think – well, I just think – I think that um, – well, firstly, I mean, just Dallas at home, the fact that um, you've got – I don't think the Packers are going to – like, you saw that the Packers – if the Packers don't get that Hail Mary at the end of the first half, I think it's a completely different ball game this past weekend against the Giants. I think that um, – I think Garrett is an incredibly underrated coach. Um, I think he's one of the top – I mean, under Belichick, probably – like a top three coach in the NFL. I mean, he should certainly be getting coach of the year um, uh, votes for what he's done with, with two rookies. Um, I think Dallas's defense is, is very, very, very underrated. Um, and I just, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't see, I don't, I don't see Aaron Rodgers um, being able to, um, the, at some point, Aaron Rodgers, you know, streak to end this year has to end. I don't, I don't think it's going to the Super Bowl. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, if it's not here, then it's next, next, next week against Atlanta. But yeah, I just, I just see Dallas rolling over Rogers, getting up two scores by the third quarter and Rogers throws that pick and then it's all over by then. And as far as Pittsburgh, Kansas city, like that's the best game. I think I think that's going to be the best game of the playoffs when all all is said and done. I think that's going to be a really really good game. I think Kansas City pulls it out just because Andy Reid, um, incredible coach. What's that stat that's being thrown around? Nineteen and two after after a bye in his coaching history. He's at home. Arrowhead is a completely underrated place to play um, for a visiting team. It's going to be cold. Uh, it's going to be uh, you know I, I I think Alex Smith is going to. Be able to limit his mistakes, and to your point, Tyreek Hill is going is begrudgingly, you know, making explosive plays this year, and I think he's going to make, you know, one or two key ones against the Steelers. I think Kansas City wins that one by like a field goal. We'll see. I could see either game going either way, but I think that offense might reign supreme for both. And the thing about Dallas, and this is my entire Dak Brady narrative because I've called him Dak Brady this year, and he's been great this year. Dak's been absolutely fantastic. Brady's first playoff game, he needed a little bit of luck to win. Uh, He needed the tuck roll to happen. And I think that Dak needs some luck if he's going to win this game because Green Bay's defense isn't great, but they've been playing a little bit better as of late, and they can stop the run. That's their strong suit. And then on offense, I mean, Rodgers is going to put up some points. I think that Dallas' defense is slightly overrated. So Mm. I don't think it's a great matchup for them, especially the way that Green Bay is playing. And I think... Dak can win the game, but Dak is going to have to get lucky. Something's going to have to happen, or he does something that he has not done before. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, Aaron Rodgers is tough, whether you're on the road or at home. And he's playing right now better than I've seen him play in a long time. Yeah, I mean, he's he, it's definitely night and day from the first half of the season for Rodgers. But, I mean, you, you've got Dak Prescott, who I forget how many – He's had like five interceptions, I think, this year. So, you know, something like that, like something incredibly low. Um, yeah, Green Bay can stop the run, but but Dak, I mean, Dak is not only good at at bringing production uh, when needs be, but he's also good at minimizing turnovers, which is incredible for a rookie quarterback. So, yeah, yeah, I guess we'll see. Um, 
Yeah, I think that we can move on now to the more portion of this podcast, and we have a lot of more to talk about. Now, before, even before tonight, uh, I think that for a lot of people, your persona was the dude with the Simpsons avatar who puts two dashes before every single tweet. Your double dash guy. And... Yep. Yeah, so actually, I have to ask, where the double dashes come from? Was that just a thing, and it just stuck? Uh, it was... Um, I I don't remember how it happened, but I remember the first time I had to respond to someone on Twitter, I made a conscious decision. I was like, am I going to be, Is there are there going to be dashes or will there not be dashes? And of course, this was in 2008 when I started my Twitter account. I didn't know how Twitter was going to go. It could have just gone the way of, you know, I, I can't even remember what some other crappy like social media things I've done for like a month and then quit were, but like, like I didn't know it was going to be what it was. And now I see that no one does dashes or, or anything. Everyone just responds right after the words. And so I'm, I'm contemplating stopping it because it is, it's pretty obscene, but no, you have to keep it. It's like your uniqueness. It's like your little signature. (laughs) I always know it's you because I see the double dashes. Okay. (laughs) But anyway, that, that was what I, I think many people knew you for. And then, in your bio, you have a website to your, that links to your writing, and mm-hmm. I clicked on it, and I saw that you had, like, all of these amazing articles that you had written, uh, worked for various outlets, and that you've had a pretty interesting career just as a writer. And a couple stood out to me, and I, I wanted to talk about them quickly. One is on the front page of your website. It's an article where you were actually homeless for a week. Uh, could you tell me why you decided to do that and what that experience was like? Yeah. Um, so I went to college in St. Augustine, Florida. And for anyone who's familiar with St. Augustine, Florida, you know that there's a lot of homeless men and women who are there. It's a warm climate. It's a touristy city. It makes sense if you're homeless to be there because you got a lot of new faces that you're seeing every day, every week, um, a greater turnover and a greater you know return on your investment if you're going out there. Um, and so throughout college, I had been pursuing a degree in communications and print journalism. And I had been also on the side, like somehow I wasn't doing this purposely, but just developing relationships with homeless men and women. Like if they stopped me on the street, I always felt really uncomfortable giving them cash. Um, because one, I didn't want to just give them cash. I knew that they were going to be spending that likely on like booze or drugs or, or what have you. Um, and, and secondly, I was like, I just feel like cash is, is the least I can do. Um, and so in St. Augustine, there's no shortage of cafes and pizza places and whatever. So if someone ever asked me for cash, I'd ask them, you know, Hey, can I, can I get you some food? And we'd go and just have food and we'd talk for five or 10 minutes and then I'd, I'd be on my way. And I somehow developed a relationship, um, with like key, um, people, key homeless, like men and women. Uh, one of them was named Seamus. And he lived under a bridge at um, an overpass of State Road 312, um, which went right over the Matanzas River, which which is you know, runs straight through St. Augustine. And so, when it came time to write my capstone journalism piece, um, you know, I said, I want to kind of tie this in. I want to you know write about what is homelessness in in St. John's County, which is the county that St. Augustine's in. 
And so I, th- I and it, it just kind of ran logically in my head. I was like, a, I was just like a kid. I was like, well, if I'm going to write about homelessness, like I can't just like interview people. I have to actually like kind of be taken under the wing of someone who's respected in the homeless community. And I've got to live with them for a week. And so I took my spring break and I just, you know, took my sleeping bag out there and we went and we, we panhandled and we dove in some dumpsters and, uh, talked with, um, you know, homeless men and women in St. Augustine and, you know, figured out that every, you know, even homeless men and women, like we talk about like football Twitter and draft Twitter and this Twitter and that Twitter. And like every culture has its own sort of subset and subculture. And that goes even with like homeless men and women. Like I looked at them as like, well, if you're homeless, you're homeless. But even they had their own like, you know, caste system. And they were like, some of them would tell me like, those people are crazy. I'm not crazy. Like those people are crazy or those people are this or those people are that. Um, so it was really just super interesting to, to learn about homelessness in St. Augustine and St. John's County. And it led to um, a piece that got me some awards with the Society of Professional Journalists. And I got published in some places and it, you know, afforded me some connections to where for the next few years, um, I, I worked as a, I worked with a, uh, an organization called InterVarsity. Um, it's a campus ministry group. I uh, met my wife through it. It was great. I did it for a few years, um, but you don't make a lot of money. Um, so I needed something on the side to be doing. And so it afforded me the opportunity to be doing journalism and writing and editing on the side while I did this other thing at Flagler College. And I mean, this immersion that you did, which was really I mean, great. I recommend people go and they read the article. It's on your site. It links in your bio. I'll tweet it out too. Um, what would you say is the biggest thing that you learned um, from your time as a homeless person for a week? Probably that it is... <laughs> The greatest thing that I learned is is sadly something that's very practical and very trivial, but it's that you should not bundle yourself up if you're sleeping out in cold weather because you can sweat and then you can develop pneumonia and get very, very, very sick. Um, and so I'd, I'd say that was that was probably one of the, the bigger things that I learned because I fa- what's funny is I found everyone giving me that piece of advice, literally everyone who found out what I was doing, all the homeless men and women, they were like, Hey, don't bundle yourself up. I was like, okay, why? And they're like, because so-and-so happens. And then they're like, Oh, and also don't drink right before you go to bed. And I was like, why? And they're like, cause it, you know, thins your blood, blah, blah, blah. So there, there were a lot of like practical things I learned about, you know, if I ever have to camp or sleep outdoors or actually be homeless, like, and, and what that kind of, what that taught me was these people are preoccupied with what is happening right in front of them. Like their mind is occupied with like, how am I going to sleep tonight? Like, like physically, like what, what's it going to look like when I sleep tonight? Where am I going to sleep tonight? And I think for me and anyone who's listening, anyone who's listening to a podcast is likely not preoccupied with the, you know, next as preoccupied with the next four or eight hours of their life, their bubble is a little bit bigger. They're thinking this week, I'm going to do this this weekend. I'm going to do that. You know, this next year, I'm going to do that. Hey, next Christmas, I'm going to spend time with so-and-so. Um, so that was really the biggest thing is like, well, no wonder all these things we do to try and help homeless men and women fail because we're coming at them with this like long-term holistic plan of like, we're going to get you out of homelessness. And they're like, bro, I just want a beer. And like, a blanket tonight 
Like that's what's at the forefront of my mind. I mean, it's definitely a great perspective to have. And I know that, um, I did a little bit of work with the homeless when I was in college and it's definitely changed the way that I treat them. Or at least I I try my best to be more empathetic to them when I see them on the street. So, I mean, that sounds like an amazing perspective to be given through your writing. And then after that, another article on your site is something that you did about human trafficking and specifically cyber human trafficking. So why don't you tell me what inspired you to do that and and what that process was like, because it seems like you did a lot of uh, research for it. (laughs) Yeah. um, So I had a friend, um, her name was Marilyn and she moved up to, so she went to college with me in St. Augustine and right after college or shortly after college, she went up to New Haven and started working with this um, anti child sex trafficking organization, this nonprofit there called Love 146. It's right in the heart of New Haven, uh, like half a mile from Yale. So she was working up there and I just, I didn't have any ideas of what to do for an article. This pub, this new publication came to me and said, Hey, we want you to write about something. We've seen the stuff you do. You pick the topic. And so I asked her, I was like, what should I do? And she's like, you should do like human trafficking in Florida, in Jacksonville and St. Augustine. I was like, Oh, okay. So what I did was, um, again, not really thinking this through, um, and like, like a child, I was just like, well, if I'm going to investigate it, then I have to investigate where these people are being sold. And they're mostly being sold, um, on the internet, like Backpage, I think, the, the culmination of Backpage being shut down just happened like this week or something like that. But Backpage, Craigslist, like personal ads, all that sort of stuff, there, there were at the time when I wrote it years ago, there were code words and there's code phrases and there still are today of, you know, when you know that you're buying, um, when you're buying someone for sex. And legally, I mean, the legal definition of, of sex trafficking is selling, like is when, is when, you are selling someone else for the purpose of sex for trade or goods or services or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, if a pimp, you like a guy who's pimping out like a prostitute to a John, like that's sex trafficking, um, legally. And it's punishable by like decades in prison, but you don't think about that. And so I went on to Backpage, I went on the Craigslist and like, I just started conversations with these people. Like I was very careful. I talked with, I talked with my uncle's, a my uncle's a judge. Um, and, uh, at, at the time he was a lawyer, talked with him about what, what I can and cannot say, like words I can and cannot use. Um, and you know, had phone conversations with these people, just kind of learning about who they are, even, you know, um, uh, you know, had an interaction with, with one of them, um, you know, where I, I had a face to face conversation with, with one of them. And, um, I don't remember if I included that in the article, uh, because it would have like compromised some sort of identity thing. But I think 10 years later, it's, it's fine if I just mentioned the general detail of, of meeting with them and just talking with them in like a public place and figuring out how they got to where they are and, um, kind of why they were, were, were still in it and what their day-to-day life looked like. Um, but mostly it was like phone conversations with these people where, um, I was able to talk with them. I was very upfront about who I was and, you know, glean, gleaning information as I could from them. And, um, then coming back with, with a piece about, Hey, you know, this, this sort of thing is actually in the underbelly of Jacksonville. Um, there's a lot of immigrants in Jacksonville who are not able to find legal work. And so they, they find themselves in these 
compromising situations where they have to put bread on the table or, you know, or maybe they're lured in by someone finds them and, you know, they're like, hey, let's take some photos, you know, modeling photos and then modeling photos turns into, um, you know, something a little bit more revealing and then, you know, drugs and alcohol get mixed into it. And then by the time you know it, like you've unknowingly like had sex with, you know, this photographer's friends for money and you're a victim of, of human sex trafficking. So, um, and then when you get kids who say that they're 19, but really they're 15, like then you get child sex trafficking. And so it was this thing where I just sort of opened myself up and I wasn't really thinking of the repercussions cause I was only, I want to say 22 or 23 at the time. I wasn't thinking of the repercussions of my actions of like actually calling up people who were selling themselves for sex and like, what kind of danger does that put you in? Um, when you're talking with someone and revealing to them, like what's happening to them and asking them questions and probing them, what does that do for the person who's like livelihood, like the pimp whose livelihood depends on this, like who, you know, has shown himself to not really be a, very responsible person and could take action against someone who's compromising that livelihood. So, um, yeah, I mean, just that's what it was. I, I did the article, I did a couple of side pieces and, and that piece actually is what landed me a job, which brought me up to new Haven, um, a couple of years later, coincidentally. So what did, do you know of any ramifications that happened because of the story that you did? Like, were there any cases of, pimps actually reacting to it or any of these women getting out of their situations? I didn't, I, I'm trying to remember. Um, I, I did not honestly follow up with it that much because after I wrote it, <clears throat> so I'm the kind of person that puts myself into a silo when I write these things. And, um, I didn't really include like friends or family and like, Hey, here's what I'm doing. Um, but then when the story came out and I was like, Hey, here's, you know, here's this thing I did. Like, here's the last thing I did. Um, I didn't really think much of it. <clears throat> I had people coming to me and they were like, Ryan, like these, these people are dangerous people. Like they're not going to like the fact that you wrote a story. Now you didn't reveal any identity. You didn't reveal any, any identity, identifying factors, but like Ryan, they're going to like tie like two and two together. And this is not good. And so I just had to, you know, I just sort of did not keep in contact with anyone, um, didn't really follow up with, with anything, tried to actually sort of bury myself for a little bit as to, so as to like, just wipe the slate clean. And, you know, I, I used it, luckily I, I had the foresight to use like a fake, a fake email address, um, that I tied to another fake email address as like a backup so that that wasn't, that wasn't an issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know of any, I don't know of any like legal ramifications. Super Spy Ryan Day, all the fake email addresses. I like that. 007. Um, yeah. And and you continue to write, which I think is great, and, and those gigs have eventually led you to be the managing editor of BigCatCountry.com. It is crazy how things go that way, but that's pretty darn cool. I mean, yeah. How, how did you get the job at Big Cat Country, actually? Well, I um, – so I moved up to – New Haven, Connecticut in 2012. And it was just me and my wife and we were newlyweds. We were married five months and then we decided, Hey, let's move across the country away from family um, with no friends. That's a good idea. Um, and it wasn't a good idea. Um, but we still moved uh, up there anyway, because we'd both lived in Florida our whole lives. And there was this opportunity for me to do, you know, marketing and communications work with a nonprofit. Um, and, uh, 
got up there and um, really up until that point, I wasn't a big guy on like Twitter. I never really spent a lot of time on it um, or Facebook. But then I was, you know, alienated from all my family and friends and everything I knew back in Jacksonville and St. Augustine. And the only way to really connect best was through Twitter. And of course, what's, you know, the people I was already connected with, um, they were talking about the Jaguars. And so I like the Jaguars and I was like, okay, well, that's what we're going to talk about. This is going to be my link back to Jacksonville. And it just sort of grew into this bigger and bigger thing. But really the reason I was using it is because I, you know, and I, and I wrote about this, um, you know, about a year into my time at New Haven, like I was really, really depressed up in New Haven. I mean, I was away from everything I ever knew. I was in a place where it snowed, um, like, which is an insane culture shock. Um, we went to New York that in itself is a, is a weird culture shock because Jacksonville's downtown is about, you know, eight square blocks and New York is just, you know, a concrete jungle. And so, like, it was just, it was, it was a lot to take in. And so I was just, I was kind of discouraged and depressed for quite a bit. And I found that I could go to this place called Twitter and I could connect with people um, who were from Jacksonville and spoke the way I did and knew about, you know, things in Jacksonville, the landmarks, the history they knew about. They could, I could ask someone about Tom Coughlin and they wouldn't, you know, give me a funny look or be like, Oh, you mean the giants head coach? I'd be like, no, I mean, Tom Coughlin, like the savior of the Jaguars from the nineties. Um, and so I, you know, I used, I used Twitter quite a bit. Um, and I, I connected a lot with people and of course, Alfie was one of them. And so big cat country was really just the publication where I was like, you know what, I got some spare time. Like I'd like to kind of continue connecting back to Jacksonville. So I wrote about a couple of things. I wrote, you know, it was mostly satire. Like I wrote one thing about, you know, a satire piece about Tim Tebow coming to the Jaguars. And <laughs> I wrote, um, you know, a couple of other things and I shared my depression story, um, on big cat country, uh, com, which coincidentally published like the day of my daughter's birth, which was weird. I didn't, she actually came two weeks early. I didn't know that was going to happen, but I published that. And right after I published the story about, Hey, you know, I'm a depressed guy, but thank you, you know, Jaguars Twitter for what you've been to me while I've been up in New Haven the last like year, year and a half, because you've actually helped quite a bit. I published that. And then I just finally, the, the floodgates kind of opened, unfortunately for, for everyone else involved. Then, then they start to follow me and then they're like, oh, this guy's got awful tweets, but we're glad we can help him. Um, but that's really what sort of opened it all up was I'm writing this stuff and I, I wrote that. And, and, and then shortly after, I, um, I think Alfie reached out to me or something like that. I was doing like I – I, I think so – I think I borrowed – without Alfie's permission, I like – I got the password for – a big, a big cat country linked account is like BCC game day or something like that, that no longer exists. But during the off season, I was posting like, you know, fun facts about the Jaguars that weren't really fun facts. I was just making fun of the Jaguars. And, um, and Alfie was like, Hey, do you want to actually manage social media for the big cat country? And I was like, yeah, that's what I do for my nonprofit anyway. And so I managed the social media. I kept writing. And then Alfie was like, Hey, we can give you a few more bucks a month if you actually write consistently. I was like, yeah, sure. And what it's turned into is, you know, Alfie and I, um, and we've had people like Cole 
partly, and we've had Hank Jones, and now we have Zach Goodall, and we've got Matt Hoffman, and um, we've got several other people on the on the staff who are good, but really it's like me and Alfie who a few years ago we said, all right, and we never actually said this. It was just sort of understood. These are our roles. Alfie is the football guy who gives us legitimacy, and I'm the guy who knows how to curate content and get us clicks. Like, so if you actually look at it, I get like three times as many reads on Big Cat Country as Alfie does, which is absurd because I'm not a football guy and I don't know a lot about football. But what I do is I keep the thing running and Alfie gives us a level of like legitimacy that um, one of us can't really function without the other. Because if you just have me, then it's BuzzFeed for Jaguars. And if you just have him, then it's, you know, two articles a week or something. So it's like you kind of need both of us and we've kind of lived in that relationship for the last few years and it's it's been fun i mean we've we had 11 million reads last year that's insane like 11 million people read about the jaguars during the most (laughs) depressing season you know of our franchise yeah that's crazy and you know that's the combo i think that news sites have to do i mean i know gawker doesn't exist anymore but that was when gawker with aj delario that was what they did they had one guy whose job was literally just to get clicks and that yep. guy got clicks, and then everyone else wrote about what they wanted. So, I mean, you got to have that combination. I, I do have to say, um, and people often get very awkward when they're complimented. This person's not in the podcast, so I don't feel like we're complimenting him. Cole Hartley's videos are the best thing that happened in football this year. Um, the preview videos, they're fantastic. And he should get snapped up by, like, The Ringer or someone immediately to do videos for their social media. He should. Period. Well, he 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 should. I mean, honestly, SB Nation should have already like come to him and been like, "We'll pay you X amount of dollars per month," and yeah. it should have been like a something where Cole was like, "All right, I have to do that." Um, no, I mean, yeah, honestly, like Cole. So Cole stepped away. He and Hank like literally left Big Cat Country in the same two week. Uh, window which was like oh crap like these two are like better than like these two are better than like me and Alfie like what what are we gonna do and what's funny is like Cole actually I feel like he got better when he left because then it was like he doesn't have to watch the Jaguars with this eye of like what am I gonna write about what's the critical thought here like what is the the angle of the article for this going to be, he could, he could watch Jaguars games and just enjoy them and be depressed by them as, you know, as anyone else. And then he was like freed up to do this thing that, and it's funny because he, he started the weekly preview videos of videos. If you go to our YouTube channel, you can see the first one or two and they're like legitimate preview videos. And then you could see like, as the Jaguars <laughs> just declined, you could see like just Cole's, Cole's brain just turned to mush. And by the end, it was like, like he, he was, I, I just told him, I was like, Cole, you need to get more and more absurd with these because until Gus Bradley's fired, like the fan base is just, you know, uh, uh, it's just an ex it's, it's, it's exhibitionist art. That's what the Jaguars are at this point. Their performance art, their exhibitionist art. Like you just need to reflect that in your videos. And he just went downhill until Gus Bradley was fired. And then, you know, came back with some, with some normal stuff. But I think Cole's videos, like, and I've told him this several times, uh, if he wanted to, he could position himself with like a major outlet. Oh, totally. He could. And if he wants Mm -hmm. to, I I, I would endorse it as well. So if if he wants to, of course, he doesn't want to do it. That's cool. Anyway, I want to transition. You'd mentioned New Haven. Um, 
I'm from Stanford. Pizza is great in New Haven and in Stanford. Um, well, first of all, have you ever been to Stanford? Um, I've only been a couple of times, and we were all but one time we were passing through. One time with Stanford, we were in um, meetings with like government, like state government people, all um, all day. But like, um, but yeah, I haven't really spent extensive time in Stanford. Why? Because they have some very good pizza as well, including Colony really? Pizza, which I know that my NBC Sports peeps know because I, I went there with uh, Josh Norris and I talked to Corey Griffin about it. So I know they know about it, but. Um, yeah, but New Haven Pizza is in a world by itself, and we have to talk about Pepe's because. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Pe- I went. I like okay. So I'm from Florida, and we have decent pizza here. We have pizza, and it, you grow up, and you're like, pizza is good, and this is the pizza you eat. And like I said, I'd never been out of Florida before. My first place living out of Florida was New Haven. And I go there, and I walk into Pepe's within a couple of months of being there. And my my conception of pizza is still Florida pizza. It's like you walk in, and it's just a you know pizza whatever. And the special was white clam pizza. And I was like, what? That sounds absurd, and it sounds awful, and I want to get one. And um, so the wife and I got it, and the wife was like, I don't know. And I finished three quarters of it because it was amazing. And then we went back like almost every, every other week we were at Pepe's. The thing about Pepe's that makes it so special is how the crust is done because the crust is like so charred and it has that right combination of being just a little bit chewy, but really crispy. It's so good. Like, Oh, my mouth's watering right now. (laughs) And and it's, it, it shouldn't taste good. You look at it and you're like, this is a plate. Like, this isn't dough anymore. This is just a plate on which the cheese and the toppings rest. And it ta- you can even taste some of the burnt, charred pieces of the crust. And yet somehow, my mouth is watering as well thinking about it. Because, it, I mean, I mean, Pepe's, Pepe's, if I ever go back to New Haven, one of the first places I'll, I'll, I'll go back is, uh, is Pepe's. Have you, have you gone around to like all the different restaurants and stuff like that in New Haven? So, I mean, New Haven's about an hour away from where I grew up. So I went there a lot. Um, so I've been to Pepe's, I've been to Sally's, I've been to Modern, which are the big three, a pizza place, a pizza is how they're called in New mm-hmm. Haven. And I mean, Modern, I think is like the third best. It's okay. Sally's is very, very good. And Pepe's is the best. I think that's yeah. generally the order. I mean, I remember I went to a Yale hockey game with my friend who, for some reason, goes to Yale hockey games. I don't know why. And yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa! Yale hockey at at the Whale. Yeah. Yale hockey. Yale hockey is fun, man. I went to a Yale Harvard playoff game, uh, an Ivy League playoff game, and that thing was lit. It was five dollar tickets. I was on the glass, and it was fun. I do not remember a thing about that game, so it might have been fun. I just don't remember it. But I, I do remember that we ordered pizza two hours before, knowing that in the hour it took to drive there, that was when we would be able to get it. Like, we wouldn't be able to get it beforehand. And um, we literally drove up. One of us ran out of the car, picked up the pizza at Pepe's, and got back in the car. And then we drove to where the hockey stadium was, and we ate it at the game. And, oh, it was so good. Like, so good. Dude, you know presidents had that stuff airlifted to the White House. 
I mean, it's that good. Like I, you, like that. That Pepe's would tell me that all the time. They're like, yeah, George W. George Senior, Bill Clinton. Like they, they all had, John Kerry, like Barrio, like all of them had it airlifted there. I mean, people say the debates between New York and Chicago pizza, but New Haven pizza is pretty up there in terms of how good it is. Although, I, I mean, New York pizza is pretty darn good, too. I mean, we went to New York a couple times. Did you have good pizza here, or did you have just, like, other stuff? In New York, New York honestly, what, what stands out to me from New York, I mean, the pizza's, the pizza's good, um, but it wasn't something that was, like, I want to go to New York for the pizza. What stood out to me from New York were all the, like, the niche restaurants of, like, it just seemed like someone got totally baked and was like, this is going to be our restaurant, man. Like, I went to a specialty mac and cheese store while I was there, and it was like, it was like a Chipotle except for macaroni and cheese. You get the bowl of mac and cheese, and then you select the toppings that go in it, and you select the cook and, you know, time and, like, what should go on the top. And it's like this, you know, you get a customized bowl of mac and cheese with whatever toppings you get. Like, those are the sorts of things that stand out to me from New York. I know exactly where that is. I think it's called Cerritos, and I believe it's in the East Village. And it's no, very no, no. good. It's something, it's something that plays off the name mac and cheese. I can't – I think it's like smacking. Oh, something. yeah. All right. I know what you're talking about. I think there's – I don't remember the name exactly, but there are a couple of those. Those those are around. I mean right next to where I live now uh, recently opened up a place called Taco Mahal, which is Indian tacos. So it's like tacos – it's like non-tikka masala tacos. That sounds like, that's amazing. It. I want they're, they're They're messy, but they're really, really good. I would assume so. They're very messy. That's my only complaint, but they're very good. I mean, there's like Indian Chipotle here. There's a little bit of everything. Uh, I I love that. That's the thing. In New York, you can come up with like a niche idea that appeals to you and your friends and like just get a tiny little, you know, uh, coat closet of a restaurant and be like, this is what we're going to serve. And you, and you literally have a million people walking by you every day and you can make it if your food's good. Like, I, I love that. My personal favorite story uh, about a restaurant in New York, and, and I don't know if you're a fan of SNL or ever watched Stefan on SNL back in the day when Bill Hader would do the Stefan skits, but um, there's a restaurant and it's in Williamsburg and it's lo- and in Stefan voice, it's, it's located on the third floor of an Urban Outfitters and not even joking, and they make Israeli food. And it's called Aish, and the chef is Elon Hall, who was on Top Chef. And the food's, like, incredible and not that expensive. And, ugh. Like, like, that's the kind of thing. Like, New York, you can go up to the third floor of an Urban Outfitters and have amazing food. And isn't that surprising? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like... It might be American Apparel. It's either Urban Outfitters or American Apparel, I always forget. But it's one of the two, so... It's the same store. Yeah, pretty much. It's like Hank and it's like Hank and Sully. Like it's it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, cut from the same cloth for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, before we close, like you've been on Twitter for a long time, and you said you wanted to talk about Twitter before uh, we got on the show. Is there <laughs> anything in specific? Like, like what are your Twitter thoughts right now? Do you think tw- how do you think Twitter's changed since um since you started? Yeah, I mean, really, I think, I think when I said I wanted to talk about Twitter was mostly about like its ability 
like, I mean, I, I was, I was depressed and discouraged in 2012. Like, and I don't use those words lightly. Like, like really, like I, I saw a therapist, like I, I, I was labeled as like depressed and it would, it was a classic, like you're away from home. You're in this new situation. You haven't even been married. Like, you know, all these, you just moved into an apartment, like it's snowing outside. You've never seen snow falling before. Like all these things were converging on me and I was depressed and turned to things that were a little bit less than helpful, like alcohol and, uh, miscellaneous. Um, uh, and really Twitter had this amazing Twitter provided the amazing ability for me to connect with a ton of people in a short amount of time who shared values and history um, and and language and, and, and all that sort of stuff with me. And I kind of wanted to just sort of talk about like its ability to do that. But if it has the ability to do that, it also has the ability to kind of weigh on you and to kind of provide the negative. Like for me, I almost feel weird saying like Twitter, Twitter's a big deal. Like Twitter, Twitter's a big deal. And you don't realize it's a big deal. Like I didn't realize it Twitter was a big deal until I came home until I was going to sleep one night and I realized I had talked with Hank in my DMS more than I had talked with my wife that day. Like that's, and or I lo- I'm, I'm logging into Twitter and I didn't even mean to log into Twitter right now. I meant to go to my email and somehow I'm on the timeline refreshing it. Like it has the ability to, to be incredibly addictive and it's because it gives you this like false sense of like social connection, not a false sense because there is still some social connection, but it, it, it gives you a veiled or a shadow of social connection that like is not like the real thing. And so I don't know, like I just, I hate, I feel like such a nerd for the fact that I have all these thoughts about Twitter and I feel like such a a lame person being like Twitter's a Twitter's a big deal. But I feel like we all log into Twitter a hundred times a day. Like it's obviously a big deal if you're doing something like 50 to a hundred times a day, you know? And it's better than Facebook. And that's the most important thing. At least you're not addicted to Facebook. Like my thing with Facebook is if I actually want to talk to you and I know you in person, I would just text you or I'd message you like, but yeah, no, I think Twitter's very transformative too. And I know that for me, it's been great to like get to know people who I wouldn't otherwise know. And uh, you're definitely one of those people and many other people are as well. And I mean, I think that especially now it's made me appreciate how being on Twitter has really expanded my horizons in terms of getting to see perspectives and talk to people and get opinions on things that I wouldn't otherwise have if I just like didn't have to make the effort in person. So yeah, go Twitter. Twitter isn't all bad, and this website is free, and that's also may it forever be free. Uh, hopefully, I mean Twitter. Twitter's a tool. I mean, Twitter is amoral. It's just like money. It's just like whatever that a lot of people will say. Like it's it's evil. It can. Do, it is what you make it. It is if you make it into an idol, it's an, it's it's a bad thing. If you make it into a tool where you connect with people on a you know regular basis, like good for it. If it's a, if it's a place where you're educated and you learn from people who aren't like you and didn't grow up where you were, it's a great thing, but it has the potential to be used in such a negative way. And I've, I mean, I've fallen victim to that. Like, you know, so 
I don't know. It was just it was just something where I'm like Twitter is unlike any other social media platform. Like I don't feel like people have this to the degree, you know, like they do on Facebook or Instagram or something like that where where they're 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 tweeting. You know, people aren't putting posts on Instagram 50 times a day or Facebook, you know, 50 times a day. But people tweet 50 times a day and it's they don't think twice about it. There's just too much going on on Twitter because you have all the news going on. You have all just the other craziness going on. Like the timeline is a slot machine. And I know sometimes I feel behind even if I look away for like two minutes. But yeah, this has been a really good episode. I I love how we sort of pulled this all together like two hours before and decided we're going to talk about these other things. And it all worked out really well. Like so many interesting points, so much good conversation. Uh, Ryan Day. People can follow you at Ryan Eats Cake. Thanks for being on the show. This was really great. Thanks for having me. And that is this week's episode of Football and More. Until next time, I'm Ethan Hammerman. Follow me on Twitter. Stay tuned for updates, and I'll talk to you later.